Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover ultrasound in pregnancy based on the ACOG practice bulletin, which was released together with the American Institute for Ultrasound in Medicine. Ultrasounds in pregnancy make up the most common test performed in pregnancy overall. Obstetric ultrasound examinations are performed with a transabdominal, transvaginal, or a transperineal approach. Real-time ultrasound is necessary to confirm fetal viability through observation of fetal cardiac activity and active fetal movement. Lower frequencies provide better penetration, but that's at the expense of image resolution. Selection of the proper transducer is based on the clinical situation. However, with most equipment, abdominal transducers generally allow sufficient penetration in most patients while providing adequate resolution. During early pregnancy, an abdominal transducer with a frequency of 5 MHz or a transvaginal transducer with a frequency of 5 to 10 MHz or higher generally provides a very good resolution while allowing adequate penetration. The American College of OBGYN and the American College of Radiology recognize three specific types of medical ultrasound in pregnancy. That is the standard examination, the limited examination, and the specialized ultrasound. A standard obstetric ultrasound exam includes an evaluation of fetal presentation and number, amniotic fluid volume, cardiac activity, placental position, fetal biometrics, and an anatomical survey. The maternal cervix and nexa should be examined as clinically appropriate and when technically feasible. A limited examination is performed when a specific question requires investigation. Now, this does not replace a standard examination. For example, a limited exam in the second or third trimester could be done to confirm fetal heart activity in a patient with vaginal bleeding or confirm placental location or to check the cervical length. A specialized exam has components that are more extensive than with the standard examination. Specialized examinations include fetal Doppler ultrasound, biophysical profile, fetal echocardiography, or additional biometric measurements. Specialized exams are performed usually by an operator trained to do these. These are also called level 2 ultrasounds. Now, regarding indications, the most common indication in the first trimester, defined as an ultrasound performed at less than 14 weeks and zero days, includes the determination of fetal number, the confirmation of gestational age, and fetal viability. It is also done to exclude the presence of an extrauterine gestation. Now, an embryo should be visible by a transvaginal ultrasound with a mean gestational sac diameter of 25 millimeters or greater. With transvaginal ultrasound exam, cardiac motion should be observed when the embryo is 7 millimeters or greater in the crown rump length. If an embryo less than 7 millimeters in length is seen without cardiac activity, a subsequent ultrasound exam at a later time can be done to assess the presence or absence of fetal cardiac activity. Of course, fetal number should also be reported. Now remember that in the first trimester, a recent change in the ACOG and international guidelines made the level of discrimination or the discriminatory zone at which level of beta-HCG one should see evidence of an intrauterine pregnancy increase that value from 2,500 up to 3,500. Once again, the new discriminatory zone for visualizing an intrauterine pregnancy and in effect to rule out an ectopic is now a beta-8CG level of 3,500.
Alright, l now for ultrasounds done in the first trimester, let's talk about dating. Before 14 weeks and zero days, gestational age assessment based on measurement of the crown rump length has a precision of 5 to 7 days. Again, that's a precision of 5 to 7 days. If the embryonic morphology is normal, and if ultrasound dating before 9 weeks and zero days differs by more than 5 days from menstrual dating, then the ultrasound can be used to date the pregnancy. Now, if the dates on the ultrasound are between 9 weeks and 0 days and 13 weeks and 6 days, then there can be a leeway difference of 7 days from menstrual dating. If the date differs based on crown rump length by more than 7 days when it is 9 weeks and 0 to 13 and 6, then consideration should be done to changing the gestational age based on ultrasound. So let's say that again. In the first trimester, defined as an ultrasound less than 14 weeks, there is a precision of 5 days if it's done less than 9 weeks. And between 9 weeks and 13 weeks and 6 days, the precision is 7 days. Now, in the second trimester, at a crown rump length greater than 84 millimeters, which corresponds to 14 weeks and 0 days and above, the precision of crown rump length to estimate gestational age decreases. So, from 14 weeks upwards, now it's time to use second trimester biometric parameters for dating. Alright, l let's discuss this dating criteria after 14 weeks. Beginning at 14 weeks, a variety of ultrasound parameters like the bipyramidal diameter, the BPD, or the abdominal circumference, the AC, or the femoral length can be used to estimate gestational age. The bipyramidal diameter is measured at the level of the thalamus and the cavum septi pellucida. Now, the cerebellar hemispheres should not be visible in this scanning plane. The measurement is taken from the outer edge of the proximal skull to the inner edge of the distal skull. The head could be flattened, called dolichocephalic, or rounded, called brachycephalic, and these are normal variants. The accuracy, however, of the head circumference is not affected by head shape. Now, the femoral diaphysis, or the femoral length, can be used for dating after 14 weeks. The long axis of the femoral shaft is most accurately measured with the beam of insonation perpendicular to the shaft, excluding the distal femoral epiphysis. For the abdominal circumference, or the average abdominal diameter, this should be determined at the skin line on a true transverse view at the level of the umbilical vein. Portal sinus and the fetal stomach when visible. Abdominal circumference, or this average abdominal diameter, is used with other biometric parameters to estimate fetal weight and is particularly helpful to give indications of intrauterine growth restriction or suspected macrosomia. For a calculation of the estimated fetal weight, a computer algorithm called the Hadlock formula can be used. Now, even though Accuracy and visualization by resolution has gotten better at ultrasound. The best methods can still yield an error as much as plus or minus 20% from the true baby weight. Okay, so this is a good stopping point for a good clinical pearl. The head circumference is the single most predictive parameter of gestational age between 14 to 22 weeks of gestation, although combining these various parameters improves the precision of gestational age over the use of head circumference measurement alone. Various tests like the MBME and oral boards always ask what is the most single predictive parameter of gestational age early in the second trimester. 
between 14 and 22 weeks. That single most predictive parameter of gestational age is the head circumference. Now, the third trimester pregnancy ultrasound, defined as an ultrasound greater than 28 weeks and zero days, is the least accurate period for gestational age assessment by ultrasound. The precision is plus or minus 21 to 30 days. Now, among the four, the single best measurement of gestational age in the third trimester is the femur length. Again, the crown rump length is the single best predictor of gestational age in the first, head circumference between 14 and 22 weeks, and after 28 weeks, the single best predictor of gestational age is femur length. However, reported precisions of femur length still range from three to four weeks at term. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back talking about amniotic fluid determination as well as the use of ultrasound for fetal chromosome abnormality screening. Several techniques have been proposed for the estimation of amniotic fluid volume during an ultrasound exam. Right now, it is either a composite score or tally of a four-quadrant assessment called the amniotic fluid volume, or the AFI, or a single deepest pocket. Oligohydramnios is defined in various ways, including the absence of a vertical pocket of at least 2 centimeters and an AFI of less than 5 centimeters. However, best available evidence supports using the deepest vertical pocket method of measurement because it leads to fewer interventions with no increase in poor perinatal outcomes compared to use of the AFI. Only the deepest vertical pocket method should be used with multiple pregnancies. So here's a clinical pearl. Rather than doing an AFI, ACOG actually endorses and prefers the single deepest pocket with oligohydramnios defined as less than 2 centimeters and polyhydramnios as greater than 8 centimeters. If an AFI is used, polyhydramnios is commonly defined as an AFI greater than or equal to 24 centimeters as a composite of the four quadrants. Well, can ultrasound alone be used to modify the risk of fetal chromosome abnormalities in the first and second trimesters? Now, although ultrasound cannot be used to confirm or exclude a diagnosis of chromosomal anomalies like aneuploidy, ultrasound can be used to further modify the risk that already exists by age or serum screening. So let's tackle first nuchal translucency. Measurement of nuchal translucency alone in the first trimester is less effective for first trimester screening screening, then is a combined test like nuchal translucency and biochemical markers. Now, among first trimester fetuses with an increased nuchal translucency, approximately one-third will have chromosomal defects, and trisomy 21 accounts for about 50% of these chromosomal disorders. Now, a second trimester specialized ultrasound exam can be targeted to detect fetal aneuploidy. Individual second trimester ultrasound markers for aneuploidy like an echogenic bowel, short femur or humerus, and dilated renal pelvis have a low sensitivity and specificity for trisomy 21, particularly when used to screen a low-risk population. Other isolated markers have little significance in the absence of an elevated pretest risk of fetal aneuploidy, and these include choroid plexus cyst or echogenic intracardiac foci. So studies indicate that the highest detection rate for aneuploidy is achieved with the use of a systematic combination of markers and gross anomalies like thickened nuchal fold, absent or hypoplastic nasal bone, or cardiac defects. 
Now, in women who have undergone invasive fetal genetic testing or who have had cell-free DNA testing, the association between these isolated soft markers and aneuploidy risk generally is not relevant, and that's according to the college. All right, well, let's end this podcast with a quick review about multifetal gestation. Because of the increased risk of complications associated with monochorionicity, a specialized examination, if available, is recommended for multifetal pregnancies. Importantly, monochorionic twins have a higher frequency of fetal and neonatal death compared with diachorionic twins, as well as morbidities like fetal anomalies and congenital anomalies, twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, prematurity, and fetal growth restriction. Recent reports suggest an increased risk of congenital heart defects in fetuses of monochorionic pregnancies, and a fetal echo should be considered, especially if cardiac anatomy is not clearly seen and normal on a specialized ultrasound examination. Now, for dichorionic twins, there's no evidence-based recommendations on the frequency of fetal growth scans after 20 weeks. However, it seems reasonable, according to the college, to perform serial ultrasound surveillance every four to six weeks in the absence of evidence of fetal growth restriction or other pregnancy complications. For monochorionic twins who carry a risk of twin-to-twin transfusion, beginning in the early second trimester, serial ultrasound examinations every two to three weeks can be considered and should be performed to look for fetal growth disturbances. Okay, this wraps up our quick review of the practice bulletin from ACOG and the American Institute for Ultrasound and Medicine on ultrasound in pregnancy. Details for this podcast came from practice bulletin number 175. We'll see you next time.